What's up, Far, Far Away family? It's your boy, Kyle, and I'm back with another season of Star Wars Audio Archives. Get set for an adventure that will leave you breathless, with tales that will make your imagination soar like a pork on a thermal detonator. So are you ready to dive into the Old Republic's Fatal Alliance? Then let's do this. Wild Space. The light star cruiser looked deceptively insignificant against the backdrop of the galaxy. To the keen eye of a pirate, however, it displayed several desirable qualities. No Imperial or Republic markings, only moderate weaponry and shielding, a crew compartment barely large enough to hold a dozen people, no escort or accompanying vessels. It's your choice, Captain, hissed a guttural voice into Jet Nebula's ear. But don't take too long about it. Our friend here isn't going to sit still forever. The smuggler calling himself Jet Nebula enjoyed keeping his first mate on tenterhooks. He harbored no ill feelings about the mutiny in and of itself. The moment the Auriga fire stumbled across something really valuable, a takeover attempt had been inevitable. He had hired Shinko knowing exactly that and lost barely a minute's sleep since. Dealing with scum was part of the job. He didn't like needless violence, though. The snub nose of a blaster digging into Jet's side was pure overkill. Well? Shinko prompted him in Rodiz as he pretended to dither. Keep your shirt on, Jet said in mock protest. We only interdicted them a minute ago. It's way too soon to plot another jump. Just don't take any chances, Shinko said, emphasizing his point with another jab of the blaster. And be glad we don't want your ship as well. Something heavy creaked to Jet's right. The boxy shape of Clunker swayed into view, dented and dusty, photoreceptors glowing bright. Jet shook his head minutely, and the droid backed out of sight again. Don't make me ask twice, Shinko said. All right, then. Jet took the captain's seat and punched the comm active. Since you put it so nicely, let's see who these guys are before we steal the hide off their backs. The star cruiser's running lights blinked and flickered against the black. Its systems were still settling after their sudden wrench from hyperspace, but Jet felt sure the comm was working by now. All ears aboard would be straining to hear what the rugged ship hanging off their bows had to say. He resorted to short, simple phrases that had served him well enough in the past. You nick my beauty. Stand by for boarding. Negative. Came the immediate reply. Male, brusque, and human, most likely. We do not recognize your authority. That was a new one. Who in the right mind would invest any authority in the likes of us? You're a privateer. You work for the Republic. Now that simply isn't true. Not anymore, anyway, Jet thought. We're humble grifters of an independent set, and you happen to have stumbled across our patch. Submit easily, and I'll see that my bloodthirsty first mate doesn't blast you all on sight. That won't happen. We're on a diplomatic mission. To whom? From where? 
If I had a credit for every time someone tried that line, you wouldn't be talking to me now. There was a long pause. All right, then. What will it cost for you to let us go? Jet looked at Chinko, who was calling the shots. Chinko's true employers were the huts, and sometimes a bribe was worth as much as booty after the cartels took their cut. The Rodian shook his head. You clear out of luck, mate, Jet told the person on the other end of the comm. Best vent those airlocks, smartish. We're coming in and don't want to scuff the merchandise any more than we have to. The Star Cruiser had nothing to say to that. Shingo barked into a communicator as Jet brought the sublights into play. Vec, Gels, get ready for action. The two Celestins were part of Shingo's treacherous lot, and Jet wouldn't mind if they paid the price for the mutineer's haste. Jet had a strong feeling the cruiser wasn't going to give up lightly. Its lines were too lean, its hull too polished. The name on its starboard side, the only ID it was sporting, said Cinzia in bold black letters, recently affixed. That showed pride. Now, the owners of this ship might not be above offering a bribe to continue on their way, but they wouldn't roll over easily. Few did these days, with the Empire and the Republic still at each other's throats, lacking but a declaration to call their squabbling an honest war. People were taking the law into their own hands. There was so much to lose, and so little to gain on every front. So much for the Treaty of Coruscant, and so much for avoiding unnecessary bloodshed, he thought, reminded of Feck and Gels. Be it red or green, blood was all the same. The less spilled around him, the smaller the chance it would be his one day. What are we going to tell our former boss when we haul in empty? That's not my problem, gloated Shinko. On Flimsy, you're still captain of the Eureka Fire. It's your job to come up with an excuse the Republic will believe. I'll be long gone before then, with the credits. True to form, then, the Rodian was planning to stiff Jet at both ends of the deal. That changed everything. Jet glanced at Clunker, who was standing innocently in front of the entrance to the cockpit. No one would get in past him if push came to shove. More important, no one would get out. Barely had the Auriga fire closed half the distance between the two ships when Jet's misgivings about the cruiser were violently justified. A scattering of red lights danced across the instrument panels. A buzzer harshly sounded. Jet studied the display for a split second, making absolutely certain of what he was seeing before raising every shield to full and punching the sublights to maximum. The Auriga fire rolled edge on to the cruiser, and Shinko staggered backward. Clunker caught him, deftly twisting the blaster out of the Rodian's grasp as he did so. At that moment, the star cruiser that should have been their prize exploded, sending a blast of pure white light through every viewport, screen, and shield. Jet had done more than just back the ship away. He had covered his eyes, and now he peered warily through his fingers at instruments gone completely haywire. There was barely anything left where the Cinzia had been. Thuds and clangs registered on the hull as bits of the star cruiser rocketed by. Shinko was barking into his communicator again, quick on the uptake, but not quick enough by half. Who fired? Who ordered you to fire? No one did, Jet said. The ship blew itself up. If I hadn't caught the neutrino spike from the drives before they went, we'd have been toasted too. 
Shinko rounded on him as though he'd planned this all along. I should shoot you right here. With what, mate? Jet nodded at Clunker, who pointed the Rodian's own blaster into his chest. Jet enjoyed the confusion nakedly displayed on his mate's green, leathery face. Let's start this again, shall we? We work for the huts now, I get that. One master's as good as any other, provided the cut's the same. But we all get equal shares in that cut, right? Or I tell the crew, who will be spoiling for the fight they just missed, they won't be happy that you were about to rob some of them. And I tell Clunker here, who badly needs another oil bath, to tighten his grip on that trigger and send you after the crew of that ship. Whatever dim part of creation they inhabit now. Get it? Acceptance replaced anxiety on Shinko's face. His hands came up. Here now, Captain. There's been some kind of misunderstanding. Perhaps you'd like to clarify, then. Sure, sure. You'll get your share. We all will. I never intended it otherwise. And the Republic? We'll sort them out. Together, like... It wouldn't be fair to leave it all up to you. I'm relieved to hear that, lad. Jet nodded at Clunker, who flipped the blaster over and handed it back to its owner. While I'm captain of this ship, as written on Flimsaplast, Barabelle Hide, or whatever, I expect a certain degree of civility and common purpose. So long as I have that, we're all gonna get along fine. He swiveled around to face the instruments confident that Clunker would stop anything untoward happening behind him, and confident also that the Rodian was smart enough to recognize a compromise when he saw one. Jet didn't mind who paid him, just like the Huts didn't care who handed them their treasure, so long as it was theirs. It all came out in the wash for those left standing. Let's see what remains of our sorry friend out there. The debris field was expanding fast. Sensors tracked the largest chunks, many of which were human-sized or even bigger. That surprised him. A dry blowout usually left only slag and dust. That looks like part of the forward section, said Shinko, leaning over Jet to point at a screen. No life signs. No witnesses, said the Rodian with satisfaction. That's normally our job, said Jet although he had never killed a single person he'd robbed in all his years of pirating. Not after he'd robbed them, anyway. Broken a few hearts, sure, and busted a few heads, but nothing worse. Don't think they were doing it for us. Why did they do it, then? Jet shrugged. That's the billion-credit question. Shinko rubbed his chin, making a dry, rasping sound with his fingertips. Now that the situation between them was resolved, he had returned to being a proper mate. He had the makings of a good one, when greed didn't get in the way. Otherwise, Jet would never have taken him on in the first place. They had something aboard. Something they didn't want us to get a hold of. Something worth more than their own lives? Jet turned to meet Shinko's slitted eyes. That sounds pretty valuable to me. Even in pieces, maybe. Exactly what I was thinking. Jet indicated the co-pilot's seat. Strap yourself in and take control of the tractor beam. Let's see what we can find. The Auriga fire came about and began scouring the remains of the ship whose journey they had intercepted. A niggling feeling troubled Jet Nebula as he did so. 
It felt like guilt, and he told himself not to give in to it. He hadn't killed the crew of the Cinzia. They had pulled that trigger all by themselves. It was just hard luck that their path had crossed his, and his good fortune to be breathing afterward. If his fortune continued to hold, he might yet make a profit from this deep space run. And then, finally, he could hire a slightly more reputable brand of scum and get back into smuggling again. Some days were better than others. Maybe this was one of them. He told himself that with all the conviction he could muster, which was plenty for a man in his trade. What could possibly go wrong? Part 1. Vested Interests Shigar Kanshi followed the sound of blaster fire through Coruscant's old districts. He never stumbled, never slipped, never lost his way, even through lanes that were narrow and crowded with years of detritus that had settled slowly from the levels above. Cables and signs swayed overhead, hanging so low in places that Shigar was forced to duck beneath them. Tall and slender, with one blue chevron on each cheek, the Jedi apprentice moved with grace and surety, surprising for his 18 years. At the core of his being, however, he seized. Master Nikhil Nobile's decision had cut no less deeply for being delivered by hologram from the other side of the galaxy. The High Council finds Shigar Kanshi unready for Jedi trials. The decision had shocked him, but Shigar knew better than to speak. The last thing he wanted to do was convey the shame and resentment he felt in front of the council. Tell him why, said Grandmaster Satil Shan, standing at his side with hands folded firmly before her. She was a full head shorter than Shigar, but radiated an indomitable sense of self. Even by a holoprojector, she made Master Nobile, an immense Thispiasian with full ceremonial beard, shift uncomfortably on his tail. We, that is, the Council, regard your Padawan's training as incomplete. Shigar flushed. In what way, Master Nobile? His master silenced him with a gentle but irresistible telepathic nudge. He is close to attaining full mastery. She assured the council. I am certain that it is only a matter of time. A Jedi Knight is a Jedi Knight in all respects, said the distant master. There are no exceptions, even for you. Master Satil nodded her acceptance of the decision. Shigar bit his tongue. She said she believed in him, so why did she not overrule the decision? She didn't have to submit to the Council. If he weren't her Padawan, would she have spoken up for him then? His unsettled feelings were not hidden as well as he would have liked. Your lack of self-control reveals itself in many ways, said Master Nobile to him in a stern tone. Take your recent comments to Senator Vob regarding the policies of the Resource Management Council. We may all agree that the Republic's handling of the current crisis is less than perfect, but anything short of the utmost political discipline is unforgivable at this time. Do you understand? Shigar bowed his head. 
He should have known that the slippery Nymoidian was after more than just his opinion when she'd sidled up to him and flattered him with praise. When the Empire had invaded Coruscant, it had only handed the world back to the Republic in exchange for a large number of territorial concessions elsewhere. Ever since then, supply lines had been strained. That Shigar was right, and the RMC, a hopelessly corrupt mess, putting the lives of billions at risk from something much worse than war, starvation, disease, disillusionment, simply didn't count in some circles. Master Nobile's forbidding visage softened. You are naturally disappointed. I understand. Know that the Grand Master has spoken strongly in favor of you for a long time. In all respects but this one do we defer to her judgment. She cannot sway our combined decision, but she has drawn our attention. We will be watching your progress closely, with high expectations. The hollow conference had ended there, and Shigar felt the same conflicted emptiness in the depths of Coruscant as he had then. Unready? High expectations? The council was playing a game with him. Or so it felt. Batting him backward and forward like a phoenix in a cage. Would he ever be free to follow his own path? Master Satil understood his feelings better than he did. Go for a walk, she had told him, putting a hand on each shoulder and holding his gaze long enough to make sure he understood her intentions. She was giving him an opportunity to cool down, not dismissing him. I need to talk to Supreme Commander Stantors anyway. Let's meet later in the Union Cloisters. Yes, Master. And so he was walking and stewing. Somewhere inside him, he knew, had to be the strength to rise above this temporary setback. The discipline to bring the last threads of his talent into a unified design. But on this occasion... His instincts were leading him away from stillness, not toward it. The sound of blaster fire grew louder ahead of him. Shigar stopped in an alley that stank like a voodoo's leavings. A swinging light flashed fitfully on and off in the level above, casting rubbish and rot in unwanted relief. An ancient droid watched with blinking red eyes from a filthy niche, rusted fingers protectively gathering wires and servos back into its gaping chestplate. The Cold War with the Empire was being conducted far away from this alley and its unhappy resident, but its effects were keenly felt. If he wanted to be angry at the state of the Republic, he couldn't have chosen a better place for it. The shooting intensified. His hand reached for the grip of his lightsaber. There is no emotion, he told himself. There is only peace. But how could there be peace without justice? What did the Jedi Council, sitting comfortably in their new temple on Tython, know about that? The sound of screams broke him out of his contemplative trance. Between one heartbeat and the next, he was gone. The emerald fire of his lightsaber lingering a split instant behind him, brilliant in the gloom. Laren Moxla paused to tighten the belly strap on her armor. The wretched thing kept coming loose, and she didn't want to take any chances. Until the Justicars got there, she was the only thing standing between the Black Sun gangsters and the relatively innocent residents of Nars Roost. 
It sounded like half of it had been shot to pieces already. Satisfied that nothing too vulnerable was exposed, she peered out from cover and hefted her modified snub rifle. Illegal on Coruscant, except for elite special forces commandos, it featured a powerful sniper sight, which she trained on the Black Sun safe house. The main entrance was deserted, and there was no sign of the roof guard. That was unexpected. Still, the blaster fire came from within the fortified building. Could it be a trap of some kind? Wishing, as always, that she had backup, she lowered the rifle and lifted her helmeted head into full view. No one took a pot shot at her. No one even noticed her. The only people she could see were locals running for cover. But for the commotion coming from within, the street could have been completely deserted. Trap or no trap, she decided to get closer. Rattling slightly and ignoring the places where her second-hand armor chafed, Laren hustled low and fast from cover to cover until she was just meters from the front entrance. The weapons fire was deafening now, and screaming came with it. She tried to identify the weapons, blaster pistols and rifles of several different makes, at least one floor-mounted cannon, two or three vibrosaws, and beneath all that, a different sound. A roaring of superheated gases jetting violently through a nozzle. A flamethrower. No gang she'd heard of used fire. The risk of a blaze spreading everywhere was too high. Only someone from outside would employ a weapon like that. Only someone who didn't care what damage he left in his wake. Something exploded in an upper room, sending a shower of bricks and dust into the street. Laren ducked instinctively, but the wall held. If it had collapsed, she would have been buried under meters of rubble. Her left hand wanted to count down, and she let it. It felt wrong otherwise. Moving in. In three, two, one. Silence fell. She froze. It was as though someone had pulled a switch. One minute, nine kinds of chaos had been unfolding inside the building. Now, there was nothing. She pulled her hand in, countdown forgotten. She wasn't going anywhere until she knew what had just happened and who was involved. Something collapsed inside the building. Laren gripped her rifle more tightly. Footsteps crunched toward the entrance. One set of feet. That was all. She stood up in full view of the entrance, placed herself side-on to reduce the target she made, and trained her rifle on the darkened doorway. The footsteps came closer, unhurried, confident, heavy. Very heavy. The moment she saw movement in the doorway, she cried out in a firm voice. Hold it right there! Booted feet assumed a standing position. Armored shins in metallic gray and green. Move slowly forward, into the light. The owner of the legs took one step, then two, revealing a Mandalorian so tall his helmeted head brushed the top of the doorway. That's far enough. For what? Laren maintained her cool in the face of that harsh, inhuman voice, although it was difficult. She'd seen Mandalorians in action before, and she knew how woefully equipped she was to deal with one now. For you to tell me what you were doing in there. The domed head inclined slightly. I was seeking information. So you're a bounty hunter? Does it matter what I am? It does when you're messing up my people. 
You do not look like a member of the Black Sun Syndicate. I never said I was. You haven't said you aren't either. The massive figure shifted slightly, finding a new balance. I'm seeking information concerning a woman called Lima Zandret. Never heard of her. Are you certain of that? I thought I was the one asking questions here. You thought wrong. The Mandalorian raised one arm to point at her. A hatch in his sleeve opened, revealing the flamethrower she'd heard in action earlier. She steadied her grip and tried desperately to remember where the weak points on Mandalorian armor were. If there were any... Don't! said a commanding voice to her left. Laren glanced automatically and saw a young man in robes standing with one hand raised in the universal stop signal. The sight of him dropped her guard momentarily. A sheet of powerful flame roared at her. She ducked, and it seared the air bare millimeters over her head. She let off a round that ricocheted harmlessly from the Mandalorian's chest plate and rolled for cover. It was hard to say what surprised her more. A Jedi down deep in the bowels of Coruscant? Or the fact that he had the facial tattoos of a Kifu native, just like her? Shigar took in the confrontation with a glance. He'd never fought a Mandalorian before, but he had been carefully instructed in the art by his master. They were dangerous, very dangerous, and he almost had second thoughts about taking this one on. Even together, he and a single battered-looking soldier would hardly be sufficient. Then flame arced across the head of the soldier, and his instincts took over. The soldier ducked for cover with admirable speed. Shigar lunged forward, lightsaber raised, to slash at the net that inevitably headed his way. The whine of the suit's jetpack drowned out the angry sizzling of Shigar's blade as he cut himself free. Before the Mandalorian had gained barely a meter of altitude, Shigar force-pushed him sideways into the building beside him, thereby crushing off the jet's exhaust vent. With a snarl, the Mandalorian landed heavily on both feet and fired two darts in quick succession, both aimed at Shigar's face. Shigar deflected them and moved closer, dancing lightly on his feet. From a distance, he was at a disadvantage. Mandalorians were masters of ranged weaponry and would do anything to avoid hand-to-hand -hand combat, except in one of their infamous gladiatorial pits. If he could get near enough to strike, with the soldier maintaining a distracting cover fire, he might just get lucky. A rocket exploded above his head, then another. They weren't aimed at him, but at the city's upper levels. Rubble rained down on him, forcing him to protect his head. The Mandalorian took advantage of that slight distraction to dive under his guard and grip him tight about the throat. Shigar's confusion was complete. But Mandalorians weren't supposed to fight at close quarters. Then he was literally flying through the air, hurled by his assailant's vast physical strength into a wall. He landed on both feet, stunned but recovering quickly, and readied himself for another attack. The Mandalorian ran three long steps to his right, leaping one, two, three onto piles of rubbish, and from there onto a roof. More rockets arced upward, tearing through the Faro Creek columns of a monorail. Slender spears of metal warped and fell toward Shigar and the soldier. Only with the greatest exertion of the force that Shigar could summon was he able to deflect them into the ground around them, where they stuck fast, quivering. He's getting away! 
soldier's cry was followed by another explosion. A grenade hurled behind the escaping Mandalorian destroyed much of the roof in front of him and sent a huge black mushroom rising into the air. Shigar dived cautiously through it, expecting an ambush, but found the area clear on the far side. He turned in a full circle, banishing the smoke with one outthrust push. The Mandalorian was gone. Up, down, sideways, there was no way to tell which direction he had chosen to flee. Shigar reached out to the Force. His heart still hammered, but his breathing was steady and shallow. He felt nothing. The soldier became visible through the smoke just steps away, moving forward in a cautious crouch. She straightened and planted her feet wide apart. The snout of her rifle targeted him, and for a moment, Shigar thought she might actually fire. I lost him, he said, unhappily acknowledging their failure. Not your fault, she said, lowering the rifle. We did our best. Where did he come from? he asked. I thought it was just the usual Black Sun bust-up, she said, indicating the destroyed building. Then he walked out. Why did he attack you? Beats me. Maybe he assumed I was a Justicar. You're not one? No. I don't like their methods. And they'll be here soon, so you should get out of here before they decide you're responsible for all this. That was good advice, he acknowledged to himself. The bloodthirsty militia controlling the lower levels was a law unto itself, one that didn't take kindly to incursions on their territory. Let's see what happened here first, he said, moving toward the smoke-blackened doorway with lightsaber at the ready. Why? It's not your problem. Shigar didn't answer that. Whatever was going on here, neither of them could just walk away from it. He sensed that she would be relieved not to be heading into the building alone. Together they explored the smoking, shattered ruins. Weapons and bodies lay next to one another in equal proportions. Clearly, the inhabitants had taken up arms against the interloper, and in turn, every one of them had died. That was grisly, but not surprising. Mandalorians didn't disapprove of illegals, per se, but they did take poorly to being shot at. On the upper floor, Shigar stopped, sensing something living among the carnage. He raised a hand, cautioning the soldier to proceed more slowly, just in case someone thought they were coming to finish the job. She glided smoothly ahead of him, heedless of danger, and with her weapon at the ready. He followed soundlessly in her wake, senses tingling. They found a single survivor, huddled behind a shattered crate. A nautilan with blaster burns down much of one side, and a dart wound to his neck, lying in a pool of his own blood. The blood was spreading fast. He looked up as Shigar bent over him to check his wounds. What Shigar couldn't tourniquet... He could cauterize, but he would have to move fast to have any chance at all. Don't, Striver. The Nautilin's voice was a guttural growl, not helped by the damage to his throat. Came out of nowhere. The Mandalorian? said the soldier. Is that who you're talking about? The Nautilin nodded. Don't, Striver. Wanted what we had. Wouldn't give it to him. The soldier took off her helmet. She was surprisingly young, with short, dark hair, a strong jaw, and eyes as green as Shigar's lightsaber. Most startling were the distinctive black markings of Clan Moxla, tattooed across her dirty cheeks. What did you have, exactly? 
She pressed the Nautilin. The Nautilin's eyes rolled up into his head. Cynthia! <coughs> he coughed, spraying dark blood across the front of her armor. Cynthia. And that is? She asked, leaning close as his breathing failed. Hold on! Help's coming! Just hold on! Shigar leaned back. There was nothing he could do. Not without a proper med pack. The Nautilin had said his last. I'm sorry, he said. You've no reason to be, she said, staring down at her hands. He was a member of the Black Sun. Probably a murderer himself. Does that make him evil? Lack of food might have done that, or medicine for his family, or a thousand other things. Bad choices don't make bad people. Right. But what else do we have to go on down here? Sometimes you have to make a stand, even if you can't tell who the bad guys are anymore. A desperately fatigued look crossed her face then, and Shigar thought that he understood her a little better. Justice was important, and so was the way people defended it, even if that meant fighting alone sometimes. My name is Shigar, he said in a calming voice. Nice to meet you, Shigar, she said, brightening. And thanks. You probably saved my life back there. I can't take credit for that. I'm sure he didn't consider either of us worthy opponents. Or maybe he worked out that we didn't know anything about what he was looking for in the safe house. Lima Zandrit. That was the name he used on me. Ever heard of it? No. Not Cynthia either. She rose to her feet in one movement and cocked her rifle onto her back. Lorin, by the way. Her grip was surprisingly strong. Our clans were enemies once, Shigar said. Ancient history is the least of our troubles. We'd better move out before the Justicars get here. He looked around him, at the Nautilin, the other bodies, and the wrecked building. Dow Striver, Lima Zandret, Cynthia. I'm going to talk to my master, he said. She should know there's a Mandalorian making trouble on Coruscant. All right, she said, hefting her helmet. Lead the way. You're coming with me? Never trust a Conchi. That's what my mother always said. And if we're going to stop a war between Dao Striver and the Black Sun, we have to do it right. Right? He barely caught her smile before it disappeared behind her helmet. Right, he said. Elden Axe licked her wounds all the way to Drummond Koss. The damage to her body was most easily treated. Many of the cuts and gashes she left to scar naturally, believing as her master had taught her, that a lesson quickly forgotten is a lesson poorly learned. The rest she treated with the help of the med kit built into her interceptor's cockpit, avoiding painkillers and anesthetics completely. It wasn't pain that worried her. That was good for her, too. The damage done to her confidence would take much longer to heal, not to mention her prospects of advancement. Darth Kratos would see to that. It didn't matter that her record on solo missions had been perfect up to this one. It didn't matter how highly she had been awarded by the Sith Academy. All that mattered was success. The Interceptor burst back into real space, and the Empire's grim-faced capital, Koss City, hove into view. I will kill you, Downstriver, Eldon Axe swore, or die trying. The debrief went as badly as she feared. Tell me about your mission, 
her master instructed in clipped tones from his meditation chamber. Axe had been admitted into his presence before his morning rituals were complete, and she knew well how that annoyed him. She bowed and did as she was instructed. Her master doled out orders with an unbendable desire to test her willingness to obey. She knew better than to outright defy him, even when she was doing her best to keep her failure from him. It was during her mission that the Mandalorian had found her, and it was this encounter she did her best to conceal from her master, inasmuch as that was possible. Tell me more, said Darth Kratos, rising slowly out of his sarcophagus. In order to focus most effectively, he occupied at least one hour a day in a coffin-like shell that allowed no light or air, forcing him to rely solely on his own energies to survive. You have not sufficiently explained the reasons for your failure. She couldn't read his mood. His face was a mess of deep wrinkles and fissures from which two blood-red eyes peered out at the world. His knife-thin lips were twisted in a perpetual sneer. Occasionally, a tongue so pale it was almost transparent appeared to taste the air. I will not lie to you, Master, she said, kneeling before him. While infiltrating an enemy cell, my identity was revealed, and I was forced to defend myself. Revealed? The bloodless lips twitched. I do not sense the foul stink of the Jedi about you. No, Master. I was exposed by another. One whose people were once allies in our war against the Republic. That was the gambit she had settled upon, to turn the blame for the incident back on the person who had caused it. So, Darth Kratos stepped free from the confines of his sarcophagus. The soles of his feet made a sound like dry leaves being crushed. A Mandalorian? Yes, Master. You fought him? Yes, Master. And he defeated you? This wasn't a question, but it demanded a response. That is true, Master. Yet you are still here. Why is this? Darth Kratos stood directly before her now. One withered claw reached down to touch her chin. His fingernails were like ancient crystals, cold and sharp against her skin. He smelled of death. She looked up into his forbidding visage and saw nothing there but the implacable demand for the truth. He did not come to fight me, she said. This I believe, although it makes no sense. He asked for me by name. He knew what I am. He asked me questions to which I knew no answer. He interrogated you. That prompted a frown. The Emperor would be displeased if you revealed any of his secrets. I would rather die a lingering death at your hands, Master. Her reply was utterly sincere. She had been a Sith in training all her life. The Empire was as much a part of her as her lightsaber. She would not betray it to a pack of persistent mercenaries who worked with the Empire whom it suited them. But how to convey the truth of this to her master when it was here, on this critical point, that her story fell apart? He asked me nothing about the Empire, Axe told her master, remembering the scene with grueling clarity. Her assailant had disarmed her and pinned her with a net resistant to all her efforts to escape. A dart had paralyzed her, leaving only the ability to speak. 
He did not torture me. I was wounded solely in self-defense. She held out her arms to show Darth Kratos the injury she had sustained. He regarded them with no sign of approval. You are lying, he said with ready contempt. You expect me to believe that a Mandalorian hunted down a Sith apprentice, interrogated her, asked her nothing about the Empire, and then left her alive afterward. Were I lying, Master, I would be sure to do so more plausibly. Then you have become unhinged. How else can I explain it? Axe lowered her head. There was nothing more she could say. Darth Kratos paced across the angular narthex in which he conducted his audiences. Displayed on the walls around him were relics of his many victories, including bisected lightsaber hilts and shattered Jedi relics. Absent were the tributes to his many Sith enemies. Although Darth Kratos hadn't earned the fear and respect of his peers simply by outperforming them, he didn't boast about those he had forcibly removed from his path. His reputation was enough. Only one in three apprentices serving under him survived their training. Eldon Axe wondered breathlessly whether the time had come for her to join those who had failed. Her life had been too short, just seventeen years. But she wouldn't raise a hand to defend herself if her master chose to end it now. There would be no point. He could strike her down as easily as swatting a fly. Darth Kratos stopped turned to face her again. If this Mandalorian of yours didn't ask about the Emperor's plans, what did he ask you? At the time, the questions had puzzled her. They still puzzled her now. He was looking for a woman, she said. He mentioned a ship. The names meant nothing to me. What names exactly? Lima Zandrit, the Cinzia. Suddenly... Her master was standing over her again. She gasped. He had made no sound at all. The cold, strong grip of the Force was back at her throat, pulling her irresistibly upright until she was standing on tiptoes. Say those names again, he hissed. She couldn't wrench her gaze away from his. Lima, Zandrit, Zinzia. Do you know what they mean, master? He let her go and turned away. With two swift gestures, the ruin of his body was wrapped from head to feet in a long, winding cape as black as his soul, and his right hand gripped a long, sharp-pointed staff. No more questions, he said. Come. With long strides, he left the room. Eldon Axe took a long, shuddering breath and hurried in the wake of her master. The sorting and storing of Imperial data was a growth industry on Dramond Koss, albeit one kept carefully hidden from view. Vast inverted sky towers drilled deep into the jungle's fertile soil, entombing centuries of multiply redundant records tended by tens of thousands of slaves. Extensive compounds spread out around the entrances, maintaining the highest possible security. To one of these compounds, Darth Kratos led Eldon Axe. He offered not a word of explanation throughout the long shuttle flight from Koss City, and she endured his silence with something like relief. At least he wasn't berating her. Her mission had become a complete failure. 
She had to practically hack her way to the spaceport and off the planet, but not before running a search through landing records in recent days. There she found a reference to the Mandalorian. He had the temerity to travel under what appeared to be his real name, Dow Striver. Once again, she renewed the vow to see him humbled as she had been, no matter how long it took. Perhaps death was too good for him, a quick one anyway. Darth Kratos commandeered a private data access chamber, 70 floors beneath the surface of the world, one equipped with a giant hollow projector, and ordered that the two of them not be interrupted. Axe trailed obediently behind him, increasingly mystified. Not once in her years of training had he shown any interest in this aspect of Imperial rule. Interstellar bookkeepers was his derogatory term for those who preferred service in the data mines to a more direct pursuit of power. She went to sit in the data requisitioner's place, but he waved her aside. Stand there, he said, pointing at a position directly in front of the screen and taking the seat himself. With brisk angular movements, he began inputting the requests. This, as much as anything, convinced her that events were taking a very strange turn indeed. Menus and diagrams came and went in the giant screen. Axe found it difficult to follow, but she sensed that her master was leading her through the vast and convoluted structure that was Imperial Records to one location in particular. This, he said, tapping the keyboard with finality, is the recruitment database. A long list of names appeared in the screen, scrolling by too fast to read. Every person to enter the Sith Academy is listed here, he went on. Their names, origins, bloodlines, and their fates, too, were applicable. The Dark Council uses this data to arrange matches and to anticipate the potential of offspring. The fortunes of numerous families rest on the nature of this data. It is therefore protected acts... It is very secure. She indicated her understanding thus far. I'm in there, she said. Indeed you are, and so am I. Watch what happens when I input Lima Zandret. A new window appeared, showing a woman's face. Round-featured, blonde, keen eyes. It meant nothing to Axe. The space below the picture was filled with words highlighted in urgent red. At the bottom of a long list of entries were two bold lines. Termination ordered. File incomplete. Target absconded. Max frowned. So, she was a traitor? A Republic spy? Worse than that. We keep fewer records on the Jedi than we do on people like this. Darth Kratos swiveled in the seat to face her. Tell me, my apprentice, what happens when a Sith is recruited? The child is removed from its family and placed in the Academy. There its life begins anew, in the service of the Emperor and the Dark Council, as mine did. Exactly. It is a great honor for a family when a child is selected, particularly if their bloodline has not been so honored before. Most parents are pleased, as they should be. And those who are not are executed, she said. Was Lima Zandrit one of them? A cadaverous smile briefly enlivened the withered landscape of Darth Kratos' face. Exactly. She was something unremarkable, 
A droid maker, I think. Yes, exactly that. From a long line of unremarkable droid makers, with no trace of force sensitivity. She produced a child with the potential to be Sith, and so the child had to go. Axe's master didn't show amusement often. It disturbed her more than his rage. The file says target absconded, she said. First, she tried to hide the child. A late bloomer who she feared would not survive training on Korriban. When that failed and the child was taken anyway, she ran with the rest of the child's family. Uncles, aunts, cousins, anyone at risk from reprisals. And has never been heard of since. Until now. From the mouth of a Mandalorian, Darth Kratos said. To your ears. Why me? She said. "'sensing that her master was studying her closely. "'Because my family attempted to hide me, too? "'Perhaps. "'What I was before I met you is unimportant,' she assured him. "'I am untroubled regarding my family's fate.' "'Indeed. I trained you well.' "'Again, that desiccated smile. "'Perhaps too well.' "'He leaned closer.' Look here, Axe, into my eyes. She did so, and the red horror of his gaze filled her. The block is strong, he said, and it was as though the words came from inside her head. It's standing between you and the truth. I release it. I release you, Axe. You are free to know the truth about your past. She staggered back as though struck, but no physical force had touched her. A silent detonation had gone off in her mind, a depth charge deep below her conscious self. Something stirred there, something strange and unsuspected. Axe looked up at the picture in the hollow projector. Lima Sandrit stared back at her with empty eyes. She was your mother, Axe, her master said. Does that answer your question? Numbly, Axe supposed it did. But at the same time, it posed many more. Darth Kratos used the chamber's hollow projector to conduct a secure audience with the Minister of Intelligence. Axe had never met the Minister before, nor seen him in any kind of communication. But the immense trust her master showed by allowing her to remain in the room was utterly lost on her. Her head still rang from the liberation from her master's conditioning. Not because of what it revealed, but because of what little difference it made to her. Her family's lack of force sensitivity had been the one thing of which she was certain about her life before becoming a Sith. She had assumed that her family had been killed, but that had never bothered her. She had certainly never worried about it, and it wouldn't have bothered her now, but for one thing. The block was removed. Memory should have come flooding back about Lima Zandrit and her early life. But there was nothing. Block or no block, there was nothing left. Lima Zandrit remained a complete stranger. With half a mind, she attended to the conversation her master was having with the minister. That's why the Mandalorian sought to interrogate the girl. She's a potential lead. A lead to Zandrit. What other conclusion can we come to? 
she must be alive. In the same bolt hole she fled down in order to evade execution, I presume. What would the Mandalorians want with her? I don't know. And the fact that we don't know makes it vital that we find her first. As a matter of principle, Darth Kratos? Or Imperial security? The two are often inseparable, Minister. I think you'll find. The man on the screen looked uncomfortable. His was the highest rank any mundane person could attain in the Empire's intelligence arm. Yet to a Sith Lord, he was considered fundamentally inferior. Disinclined he might be to acknowledge that a single missing droid maker warranted his attention, even one who tried to hide a Force-sensitive child from the Sith. But to disobey was inconceivable. Then a thought struck him, and the conflicted look on his face eased. I wonder, he mused, tapping his chin with one long digit. Just yesterday, a report arrived from our informer in the Republic Senate. The Huts claim to have gotten their hands on something valuable, and they think the Senate would like to bid for it, against us. I searched diplomatic dispatches and learned that we've received exactly the same offer, but couched in the opposite terms, of course. Ordinarily, I would dismiss such an approach as unworthy of attention, but the fact that it came from two widely different sources does lend it some credence. And now this... I fail to see how the Huts are connected. They are compulsive liars. Undoubtedly. But you see, Darth Kratos, this is where it gets interesting. The ship from which the Huts claim to have retrieved this mysterious, um, artifact, data, what have you, that ship is called the Sinzia. And I note in the file you accessed that this is the girl's birth name. Darth Kratos nodded. There must be a connection. That the ship was named after Lima Zendrit's daughter, and a Mandalorian is asking after both of them? I think so. But it helps us very little without knowing what the Huts are auctioning. That took some of the triumph out of the Minister's expression. I will pursue that information immediately, Darth Kratos. I trust you will, Minister, as a matter of principle. The long-distance audience ended with a shower of static. It took Eldon Axe almost a minute to realize. Disconnected phrases filled her head like birds, looking for somewhere to roost. A potential lead? Named after Lena Zandrit's daughter? The girl's birth name? It occurred to her only then that the name she thought of as hers was nothing but a version of her mother's initials. What have you been doing these last fifteen years, mother? Tell me what you remember, Axe. I don't want to remember, Master. Why not? Because it's nothing to do with who I am now. So what if Lima Zandrit was my mother? If I met her tomorrow, I probably wouldn't recognize her. I've never known her, never needed her. Well, you need her now, Axe. Or at least, you need her memories. Her master came so close, she could feel the deathly cold of his breath. It appears that knowledge of Lima Sandret and her missing droid makers is important to the Mandalorians. That means it's important to the Empire, too. For what strengthens another weakens us. Anything you can remember about your mother's whereabouts might be crucial. I therefore suggest you try harder. To reward you, I will put the block back in place afterward. 
so the memories will disappear again, like they never existed. All right, Master, she said, although her head hurt at the thought. What if nothing came? What if something did? I'll try. You'll do better than try, Darth Kratos told her with chilling finality. In ten standard hours, I expect to be standing before the Dark Council with you beside me. If you let me down, both of us will suffer. Wow, now that was an interstellar adventure that defied all expectations. We just completed the first part of Fatal Alliance, and every moment in this part had me like, wow. The Star Wars universe continues to astound me with its epic storytelling, leaving us eager for what lies beyond. Prepare for the next cosmic revelation. But before we launch, let's unveil the quote of this episode. A message straight from the depth of the galaxy, and it comes to us from Audrey Hepburn. She said, the only way to achieve the impossible is to believe it is possible. Now let me break this down to help us all out. When we set out to achieve a goal, it is important that we believe it is possible. If we do not believe in ourselves, then it is unlikely that we will ever succeed. However, if we believe that anything is possible, then we are more likely to take risks and try new things. We are also more likely to endure when things get tough. There are many examples of people who achieved great things because they believed in themselves. For example, Thomas Edison believed that he could invent a light bulb that would work. Even though he failed thousands of times, he never gave up, and eventually he succeeded. If you have a dream, don't let anyone tell you that it is impossible. Believe in yourself and never give up, and you will be surprised at what you can accomplish. And that's all I have for this episode. I hope you enjoyed the first part of Fatal Alliance as much as I did, and I hope you will join us next time for more thrills and adventures. Until then, may the Force be with you. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archives. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you. Sway was created by Keen Eye Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and was distributed by Swaycast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic's Fatal Alliance was read to you by Jason Odega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host, Kyle, and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs>